Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. We, uh, along with about 36 other denominations around the world, use the Revised Common Lectionary. There are other lectionaries and if you want to get into some deep weeds, you can try to figure out why different communions use different lectionaries and the history of them. But this practice of finding a way for a community to faithfully, diligently come under the scriptures week after week in an ordered way that tells the full story of the gospel over a long, long period goes back a really long time. What we do on Sundays follows a three-year cycle. So every three years, we cover the majority of the scriptures. You might not know that we also have, uh, there's a daily lectionary. It works on a two-year cycle. And it's a way, and you even get things that get left out on Sundays, you pick up in the daily lectionary. And we have a, an email that goes out once a week that provides each week the readings for each day, a prayer you can pray. And if you don't have that, would like to have that, you could fill that out on your liturgy guide or you can, you can sign up for it on our website. I say all that just, just to remind us that we don't choose the scriptures that we read. They're handed to us. I happen to think that there's something actually even uh, subversive about that act, that we don't get to just choose how we worship in every way. Obviously, we have our own um, uh, uh, personality, our own identity as a community and ways that this gets fleshed out. But there's lots of things that we just submit along with God's people around the world and say, yes, we're going to read this story. So there are some Sundays where you read scriptures and you think, why in the world are we reading that? Well, um, as you can imagine, there's been a whole lot of thought put to why we read what we do when we do. And the truth of the matter is, I probably wouldn't be a good American pastor if I didn't have some quibbles you know, here and there with what they choose and I would choose differently. But I wonder if perhaps it might the question might be raised on a Sunday like this, why we went back to read Genesis 1. I mean, we just encountered Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. The church was launched. The Spirit set a wildfire out in the, uh, the uh, Spirit set a wildfire out in the church that set out like parched uh, wood around the world and it exploded. When that explosion happened, all of a sudden, people who were enemies now were friends. People who wanted to have nothing to do with each other now were joined into a community of mutual love. After the Spirit came, those who had nothing all of a sudden had plenty. People who could not comprehend in any way the story of the God revealed in Jesus now understood. So isn't it odd, on this first Sunday of Pentecost, we'd go all the way back Genesis. Shouldn't we be pushing forward with this other story, not going back? We're returning to Genesis because what God is doing now through the Spirit is the same thing God was doing at the very beginning. In Genesis, God was creating a new world that God filled with himself and with his love and with his people. And now in Acts, God, again, through the Holy Spirit, 
is taking what was, in the words of Genesis, formless and void. We might say broken, maimed, destroyed, scarred, seemingly ruined, and God is making beautiful, vibrant life. In the power of Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is again creating a new world. A world that will be filled with God's glory, a world filled with God's love, a world filled with the people that God loves. God had told Adam and Eve to spread God's beautiful garden to the ends of the earth. But we know how that story went. Things barely got off the ground before all hell broke loose. But God would never let that be the end. And now through the resurrection of Jesus and the explosion of the Spirit, now, literally, all heaven's breaking loose. Right here, in this world, in our life, if we'll let it. The resurrection stories highlight often how Jesus rose on the first day of the week. It's this marker that says, a new week is happening. A new creation story is happening. A new Genesis is happening. And the Holy Spirit is now bringing Jesus' resurrection to bear in every corner of our world. The Holy Spirit is flooding us with God's healing life, creating us again into a resurrection people who are discovering deep joy and freedom as we are healed of the ruinous effects of our resistance to and our estrangement from God. And by God's Spirit, we're told that we are becoming a people who trample evil, who pierce the world with beauty and announce to God's world the good news of the kingdom of God breaking in everywhere. Do you encounter those signs here and there of that light breaking in, that new creation breaking in? Um, about two months ago, I was in a living room uh, over by the old, um, well, by the, by the Kmart, and uh, there was a, a refugee. Um, they were here from Afghanistan. And the night before, or actually about a week before, uh, he was walking to work. He worked at the UVA hospital in the laundry. And uh, he was crossing over 29 at a place you just really shouldn't be crossing and and he was struck by a car and he was in a coma and uh, three children and a wife three young children five and down and could barely speak English the worst part of the story in some ways was that that was the very last night he was gonna have to walk to work uh, international neighbors had uh, had arrived at getting a car um, donated to him, which he was going to get the next morning. Um, and there he was. And there was all kinds of uh, horror, sadness, immense questions, all, all kinds of questions that if this had happened to my family, it would be disastrous. But happening to this family, who didn't understand how to navigate the system, who had very little community around them. But I was, so I was sitting in a room 
with uh, his wife, his children who were, who were kind of running around, uh, several friends, people from another church who had been um, coming alongside them in friendship. Um, and there was something happening in that room that I can only describe as, as the Holy Spirit. There was a, a, a movement toward this family, a, a movement of grace and compassion. I was thinking this week about uh, another fellow I knew who made some really bad choices, and he left his family uh, and a daughter and his wife who was about to have a second child. And I remember sitting um, in my, uh, our basement with him, and I remember pleading with him not to leave. And I remember the look on his face, which was just uh, implacable. He had made his choice. And I remember the people that came around him, and I remember how a month later, he changed his mind and he didn't leave. And I remember now on my, uh, on my Facebook feed, I'll regularly get pictures seven years later of them and their family and the joy they're having and his children who are now growing up with a dad at home. And there's something about that encounter that is the Holy Spirit bringing life into this world. God will not abandon the world, but God intends to fill the world with God's own life and presence and beauty and power and goodness. Now, over the past few decades, uh, biblical scholars have helped us to recognize some things in this Genesis reading that as modern readers, we've probably mostly missed. I know I have. The first readers of Genesis were immersed in a world that assumed that gods lived in temples, not primarily places for people to come and worship. That was secondary. The temples were primarily places where the God would come and live or rest, if you will. The people would build temples, and once the temple was constructed, they would dedicate or consecrate that temple, and that dedication often lasted seven days. At the very last, they would put the idol of their God into the middle of the temple, and then the place would become, in that act, the resting place of their God. But not merely the place where their God slept. It was the place from which their God would rule. It was the place where their God's power would rest. So think of Genesis 1 now. Written to a people submerged in a world that instinctively viewed reality this way. And imagine them hearing the story of these days of creation, where God is creating a world and how on this final day, the one true God rests. What's happening here? Well, the first readers of Genesis would have known exactly what was happening. God was building himself a temple. And when the temple was done, God would rest in the temple. God would live in that temple. God would rule from that temple. And what is this temple exactly? Well, according to Genesis, it's the world. It's this place we call home. It's this marvelous creation. This is God's dwelling place. Isaiah says, the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. 
Can you see now even more what it means when we say that the earth is made for heaven? God has always intended to fill this world, to fill our lives with his own presence, life, goodness, always. So Israel had a tabernacle and then a temple. And much of the architecture and the symbols of this tabernacle and temple were actually built to reflect the cosmos. And for a long time, we haven't really known why that would be. Is it just sort of a, a picture to remind us that God created everything? Well, it's, it's much more than that. The first century uh, Jewish historian, Josephus, he described the pieces of the temple and said, every one of these objects is intended to recall and represent the universe. So Israel's temples and tabernacle were meant to reflect the fact that the whole world is actually God's temple. The stark distinction between the natural world and the spiritual world is a fundamental assumption for us in the modern world, but it's absolutely bogus. If the world is God's temple, then God does not show up only in the miraculous, only in these great displays of divine power. I'm coming to the conviction that we don't see God for the same reason we don't see the sky above us most days or the grass under our feet. We don't see it because it's everywhere. The world wouldn't make sense if it wasn't there. It's the world we live in. God is everywhere. God's very presence upholds the world. So sometimes when I uh, have conversations, I don't know if I've shared this before, but someone will say, I, I can't see God. Um, some place, times, the place we need to start is going to say, okay, can you see a tree? Can you see a blade of grass? Can, can you see the face of the person that you're looking at? God holds that together. The world itself would melt away if it weren't for God's presence. And I just have to say, almost, you know, maybe as an aside, it's really not an aside. There's this debate that Christians sometimes have about whether it's appropriate to give attention and resources to care for creation. Can you see how ridiculous that question is? If the world is God's temple, what in the world are we doing talking about whether or not it's worth our time to care for it? Now, there's an important distinction in the familiar pagan stories that the Genesis readers would have known and the story that Genesis actually tells. There's actually a number of them. One of these uh, differences, obviously, is that in the pagan stories, it was us who were building the temple. In the Genesis story, it's God who's building it. Another distinction, and there's lots more we won't go through, but another distinction is in, in the human stories, they were the ones putting the idol into the, into the temple. In, in this story, God places himself into the temple and does something else. God places not an idol of God, God places an image of himself into the temple. 
It's Eve and Adam. It's humans who do what? Who bear the image of God. It is Adam and Eve who are icons of God. It's Adam and Eve who, this is a really crude way to say it, but if you can understand the language, who are the idols of the true God. We are the representation. You are the one. You are the one who is to bear God to the world. In your body, in your voice, in your loves, your passions, your vocation, your joys, your heartaches, in your authority and your resources and your efforts, you are the one who brings God's life and authority and healing into the world. And how can we possibly do that, we ask? That sounds impossible. It is unless God's spirit comes and lives in you and brings God's very life to you and so that what you are passing to the world is the life of God, the energy of God offered to you through the very spirit of God. And so this is why we would conclude today with the gospel reading of Matthew 28. Jesus came bringing God's authority and life and possibility to us and then Jesus through the Holy Spirit has gathered us into God's own life, has filled us with God's purposes and power, and sent us into God's world where God is already present and commissioned us to call all people into this communal life that we know is the Trinity. The comprehensive, generative, healing life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We are the image bearers of this Trinity. We are the ones the Trinity has placed into God's temple to express God's authority and even made each one of us our own temple. We, Paul says in Corinthians, are also the temples of the Holy Spirit. This is quite a life we've been given. We've got work to do. But thanks be to God, it is not worth work that exhausts. It is work that joins. Every place where you are present, you bring with you the very life of God. That is true whether you recognize it or not. The freedom and the power comes as you recognize what God has placed in you. As you surrender it to God. As you say, yes, yes, me. And that's God's invitation to each of us. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.